Welcome to the Prince of I Peace podcast. Got a phone We're call here one grow time faith, from a, a member of my staff when I was serving as a, a director of an outdoor ministry. And he said, I think I need to tell you what happened before you hear it from somebody else. And you always brace yourself when you get those phone calls. Like, okay, what is this going to be about? And this was a program where camp counselors would go into the congregation for the week, do day camp for the congregation, and then they would stay overnight in people's homes and then do the program for the congregation. He said, we arrived on Sunday morning like scheduled. We met our host family, and, and they said, we can't take you home after the service. Someone else will take you and drop you off. But just go on in, make yourself at home, and, and, and settle in. So he said, we, we got our work done at the church. We went and we settled into the home where we were dropped off. We made food that we found in the refrigerator and the freezer. We did our laundry. We all took naps. He said, that evening, the owners of the house came back. It wasn't the people who were hosting us. We had been dropped off at the wrong house. And I think sometimes when we talk about what the church is like, we're not quite sure we're in the right place because there are so many different ways of, of looking at what the church might be like. And in our tradition, in the Lutheran tradition, we have a certain way that we understand church. I think the gospel text for today can help us get at that. And the first section is related to this this, this struggle between purity and morality. We have the, the Pharisees who are, are challenging Jesus and his disciples because they don't follow the rules of, of purity. That is, keeping everything clean from hands to food to plates to whatever. Now, I have to admit that there are times when I fall into that category of the laws of purity... My, my son, who in two weeks will no longer be a teenager, um, taught me about this need for purity because there would be nights when we would go to the cupboard to get out plates to set the table for dinner, and there wouldn't be any plates there. And I knew where to look. I knew to look in his closet and under his bed in his bedroom. And we pulled them out, and you couldn't tell what he had eaten. They had been there that long. And so I, for me, I, I wasn't satisfied with just washing them in the sink and using them. I needed to run them through the dishwasher to, to sterilize them. So we all have this thing of purity that's, that's connected to us. Jesus challenges the religious leaders of the time and their understanding of purity because he says they think that just because they keep everything clean, that makes them a good and faithful person. Jesus challenges them and says to them, you know, it's not what you put into your mouth and how clean you are and how clean it is. It's what comes out of your mouth. And he gives this long list of things that come out of our mouths that, that do harm to other people, do harm to communities, do harm to different groups of people, and even do harm to ourselves. I think what has happened is that the Christian church in this day and time has chosen one side or the other. There are those who are bound to purity. Now, I would say that this purity is, is captured in the language of um, being real. 
And so you're not a real Christian until you believe a certain set of beliefs. You're, you're not a real American unless you hold on to these practices. They also use the line, the, the line that says, um, in name only. You only this in name only. And it's, it's that group of people that's trapped into that way of trying to keep everything pure because that's the only way God will love them, right? It's so they get everything right. On the other side is this, this morality, and I, I think it's captured in the language of you don't care enough. We'll name a group of people, and then we'll say you don't care enough to do something for them. And we get in this battle of only those who care enough are the true and faithful ones. It's easy to think that Jesus is promoting the second one over the first because of his challenge to the Pharisees, but Jesus would have known this teaching in his Jewish upbringing, which is God's people were commanded to do both. They were commanded to a life of purity so that they would be ready to stand in the presence of God when that moment happened. But they were also commanded to works of justice, which put them out among people who would be seen as unclean and undesirable, which threatened their purity. And they were asked to do both. In, in Hebrew, the language of, of doing both is captured in the word integrity. Look at the end of Psalm 25 or the beginning of Psalm 26, and you hear the language of integrity used. So if it's not one or the other, what then are we talking about here? I think what Jesus is talking about here is this fundamental flaw that exists within each one of us where we won't trust God over everything else in the world. The story of Jesus encountering this Canaanite woman, I think, helps us then to understand a different approach to living out our faith. Now, usually when I was a senior pastor of a congregation and I would read through the text coming up with the preaching schedule, I would take texts like this where Jesus calls someone a dog and I would assign it to my colleague, the associate pastor, to, to take on. It was always fun to give them the hard ones for that one. Because it's hard to hear Jesus talk about this person as a dog. But what I want to ask you to consider is the possibility that Jesus' conversation with her happens in the same way with others in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus' disciples are out in a boat and a storm comes along and they are terrified and, and they wake Jesus up and say, don't you care? And what is his response? You of little faith. Or Peter is in the middle of a storm and he asks Jesus, tell me to walk on water. And Jesus says, well, walk on water. And, and Peter does that and all of a sudden the waves start to kick up and he gets afraid and he starts to sink and, and Jesus brings him back up. And what does he say? You of little faith. It's a pattern for Jesus to challenge people in the condition in which they find themselves. But it's also a pattern that after he challenges them, he then offers them something that saves their lives. And so after the disciples panic and he says, you have little faith, Jesus then 
calms the storm so that they are safe from everything that threatens us. And after Peter is brought out of the water and Jesus confronts him about not having faith, Jesus stills the storm and saves Peter and the disciples. And so what Jesus does is he, he puts in front of people this broken condition of theirs, asks them to acknowledge the truth of that, and then shows them what he is going to do about it. The same thing happens with the Canaanite woman. He confronts her with the fact that she, just by nature of her birth, was considered unacceptable. At the same time, in the end, he accepts her faith and heals her daughter. It's that pattern of accepting the person in their brokenness and saving them from that which destroys them. So there's one more story in Matthew where this pattern plays out, and that's um, just after the transfiguration, and Jesus has sent the disciples out to do some work, and they try to heal this boy who has a disease, and they just can't make it work. And Jesus, he looks at the disciples with the same phrase and says, you of little faith. And then he announces this, I will go to Jerusalem where I will be handed over, where I will suffer and where I will die and where I will be raised from the dead. That this work of Jesus, bringing us from our brokenness to being saved, is accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's the work of the church, is to tell people what Jesus is doing in our lives. And what Jesus is doing in our lives is saving us from that failure of ours to trust in God. It's really a story of restoration my son was three days old when we adopted him. Went up to Cleveland, picked him up at, at Cleveland Metro Hospital. Because we got him when he was three days old, we can't blame anyone else for what's wrong with him. It's all on us. And we, from the very beginning, were very clear with him about his adoption. We didn't want him discovering it years down the road and being horrified and shocked. And so every year when his adoption was finalized, which was on March 15th of that year, we celebrate his adoption day. So he got his birthday presents in September, and he got his adoption presents in March, and his friends were jealous because he, he got presents two times a year. And we continue told him the story of how we adopted him, which, as he got older, meant something to him. And whenever he would feel overwhelmed or worried or scared... He would come up to my wife or me and he would say this, will you tell me the story of how you got me again? Tell me the story of how you got me. And that's the story that we as the church are telling. The story of how God got us through Jesus. It's captured in that wonderful mission statement that you have listed on your, your Facebook page and your website, which is saints and sinners seeking a world 
a, restore, a world restored by grace and peace. There aren't some of you who are saints and others who are sinners, which is what we like to think. We are all, notice I left the middle section out, so you're in the free here. It's that we are both at the same time. And we are being restored and made whole through the work of Jesus. Now, there will be times when we as believers will actually be attacked for who we are. We anticipated that our son would at some point be made fun of in school, just because that's the way school is, in part because he was biracial. But we never expected that the first time he was made fun of would be when he was made fun of for being adopted. He came home in tears, having been made fun of on the bus. And we were talking to our neighbor about it, and she says, do you realize that my teenage son was adopted? And we had not known that. And he came over to our house and took our son under his wing and spent time with him, comforting him and assuring him of how much he was loved. And that's part of what the faith community does, is to receive back into its fold those who have been hurt, those who have been wounded, and to reassure them of their love. Your pastors are called to lead a community that strives to live and love like Jesus. And you have extraordinarily gifted pastors to help you in that time. What I want to offer with you briefly before I close is just a, a couple of, of qualities that your pastors can bring to leadership of this congregation that will continue to make this a strong and vital congregation. And the first quality is that of learning and loving the people of the congregation. Pastor Michelle, fall in love with these people. And she'll fall in love with you not because you're perfect, but because God loved you first. And I have to tell you, after serving in the congregation for 15 years, the longer you stay, the harder the funerals become because you've fallen in love with the people of that church. So fall in love with the people. Learn to listen. Develop the capacity to listen. I know pastors are usually considered the paid talkers for the congregation, and that got my son in trouble in school because he had two parents. My wife's a pastor who both talked for a living, and so he thought that was his job in class as well. Listening, such a, it's a beautiful gift to a relationship. Mary Margaret Funk, who talks about how sometimes people go on silent retreats for longer or shorter term, said that the gift of being silent for an extended period of time teaches you what's called taciturnity. And she said taciturnity for her was not having the need to comment on everything. I think that's a gift we could all start doing more of. It's understanding the balance between mission and, and maintenance. 
Mission is when the work needs to get done, and there are times when we need to be focused and oriented on getting things done and moving forward. Maintenance is the time when we need to start paying attention to each other and offering care and support for each other. And to know which time is the right time to do which. And finally, the issue of status. There are times as a pastor when you take a high status position where you are in charge. Like right here, right now, I'm taking that high status position when you put someone my height on steps this high. It even exaggerates that. The building in which I led worship for 15 years was an old colonial building. The pulpit was 20 feet off the ground. So you had 20 feet plus six foot five on top of it. It was a very high status position. But there are other times when we as pastors step back because there are people in the congregation who are more skilled and gifted than we are and able to do the job better than we are. You are children of God, beloved by God, saved through Jesus. And it's not because you're good enough because that's a horrible cycle to get into. But it's because God is good, and God loves you, and God is the one who will save you. Amen.